Hi there, Duncan Green here with the uh, weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. And I'm absolutely knackered, so uh, I may stumble and mumble even more than usual. But it's been a hell of a week. Uh, but the good news is I'm on holiday next week. So A, I'll have a holiday and I'm going somewhere warm, uh, hopefully where you can swim in the sea rather than freeze like you, like you do in Britain. Um, but also it means you won't have to endure a podcast from me next week. Uh, so we're all taking a week's break. All right, let's catch up. So usual links I liked on Monday. Uh, there was one I posted which um, was a kind of prov provocation, I think. Uh, it's from uh, um, a group called the uh, Happier Lives Institute. And they did some, uh, they compared psychotherapy with cash transfers, which are the sort of go-to favorite intervention of the moment. And what they found was, we estimate that Make Strong Minds, which provides psychotherapy, is 12 times more cost-effective than Give Directly, which provides $1,000 lump sum cash transfers. So this got my attention, A, because it tweaks the nose of the, you know, of the most popular uh, intervention at the moment, who always argue that they are the most cost-effective. So it's quite funny seeing them... Um, hoist on their own petard. But also, I think it just raises this really interesting, several interesting questions. One is, why is mental health such a sort of Cinderella issue in development? But also, is measuring life satisfaction a rigorous way of, of assessing the impact of an aid project or an aid intervention? And I think there's a lot of work being done on that. I did sort of looked at it quite a lot about 10 years ago, but it's, it seems to, I haven't heard much of it since. But it got the measurement geeks very agitated, lots of people coming on the on the blog uh, to comment and question the methodology and all that sort of thing, which people love doing. So if you're interested in uh, in mental health versus cash transfers, that's the one for you. Um, second post of the week was a broadside from some um, civil society leaders from Tanzania, Zambia and Malawi. And the title was Traditional Approaches to Aid and Development are Failing Us. It's Time to Invest in Community-Driven Change. And this was from Mary Kabati, Rona Labinda, Adela Materu, Kingsley Makawila, Jones Mwalwanda, Prospen Daiga and Moses Zulu. So there's a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> and I'll just read out a bit of it. If COVID-19 and the recent uprisings for racial justice around the world have made one thing clear, it is this. The global development sector needs to radically rebuild itself from the ground up. As leaders of community-based organisations in Tanzania, Zambia and Malawi, we have already been sounding the alarm on the challenges of the traditional structures of aid and development. Now we are coming together to say that enough is enough. The fragility of the global aid and development system and the systems of oppression and colonialism that have underpinned it, underpinned it can no longer be ignored. International Global North-led development is failing to affect real, sustainable, systemic change in Africa and across the Global South. And that failure is rooted in donors' relationships with communities. Funders from the Global North must radically review how and who they fund and their relationships with the communities they seek to serve, or they will find that they are creating more problems than they are solving. It is no longer sufficient that donors have good intentions and deep pockets. It's time for community-driven systems change. We have seen firsthand the shortcomings of the current system of global aid and development, watching the repetitive cycle of short-term, unsustainable, top-down programming come through our communities and seeing it fail to achieve long-term change. 
our deep relationships and contextual understanding of power structures and local priorities have been dismissed by international donors who rely on unrealistic and unchallenged metrics of success that have little grounding in reality. True that. We've been dictated to by donors and INGOs, international non-government organisations, with one-size-fits-all strategies that set us up for failure. But we've also seen the path forward. Too many funders still assume that having resources is somehow correlated with being best placed to dedicate how to allocate to whom and how to spend these resources. This underlying, often unspoken assumption is poisoning sincere efforts to do good and frustrating the ability of the actual local experts to do their work. Committing to community-driven systems change must start with a mindset shift that recognises that this assumption is false. From there, donors can take on the practical work of building new, high-impact strategies and funding practices rooted in local relationships. So how can you change? Here are some of the key recommendations we endorse from the report, and this is it's a summary of a big report on this issue. One, recognise the colonial structures that you and your organisation might be perpetuating. Two, reconceptualise the role of community-based organisations in global development efforts. Three, redefine success, impact, sustainability and effectiveness. And four, reimagine funder community-based organisation relationships in ways that reflect mutual respect. So a kind of cry from the heart from those um, community-based leaders. And I think there's plenty more. That was, a, that was just some extracts from the blog. And there's a report that it's, that it's summarising. So if you're interested in that topic, please dig in. Third post of the week. 20 years of UK governance programmes in Nigeria. Achievements, challenges, lessons and implications for future, future support. This, this is one of those monster reports, 113 pages I was sent. Um, luckily, it had a 20-page executive summary, which is far too long in my book for an executive summary. Not many executives want to read 20 pages, but anyway, it's better. I read that. And it's an ODI, Overseas Development Institute, study by Law Helen Piron, Piron, sorry, Claire Cummings, Gareth Williams, Helen Derbyshire and Sierra Hadley. And it digs into one of those you know, programmes that you keep coming across, in my world anyway. Um, and I've written a lot about it on these projects, uh, on these pages rather, on the, on the blog, which is a big UK investment in governance reform, reforming the institutions of the state, focusing on four states in Nigeria, which is a federal system, up in the north, Jigawa, Kano, Kaduna and Yobe, and um, a series of, of, of lots of long acronyms of governance programmes. And what they did was pioneer this stuff which later became known as doing development differently, thinking and working politically, adaptive management, and the, these are the kind of things I've been writing about. But even before those terms were invented, they were actually doing it. Um, and here's some of the findings. So findings on thinking and working politically. For over 15 years, UK governance programmes in Nigeria have been at the forefront of seeking to understand the political economy of their contexts, tailor interventions accordingly, and work in politically smart and adaptive ways. They relied in particular on frontline delivery teams from these northern states, Nigerians, who developed relationships of trust with state governments and non-state actors, with deep contextual knowledge based on regular political economy analysis and at times decentralised decision-making. This ability to think and work politically is the main reason why programmes were able to achieve the range of contributions to outcomes documented. Based on these UK governance programme experiences, um, 
important and internationally recognized lessons have been documented and disseminated inside DFID slash FCDO, its new name, and globally. <clears throat> but there is some real concern that UK aid is losing the plot. That's me, not the report. In recent years, UK government development policies and processes and the incentives they create for program management and delivery are increasingly preventing UK governance programmes in Nigeria from operating in the ways of thinking and working politically. The authorising environment created by the UK government has become increasingly constraining, for instance in demands to demonstrate short-term results and associated contract management tools such as payment by results. As a consequence, UK governance programmes have probably achieved less than their full potential. So let's just unpack that last paragraph. It's basically saying, well, you did a really good thing. You, you established and built and created this great experiment and then you killed it. And you killed it by bringing in a lot of management tools which made a lot of sense in Whitehall or made a lot of sense to the to Treasury, but made absolutely no sense in terms of working on the ground in Nigeria. And that is a complaint and a lament you hear across the aid sector, we're being killed by compliance. We're being killed by ch uh, checklists and tick boxes. We're being killed by log frames. All these things that are introduced and forced onto recipients because donors call the shots, they're the ones giving away the money, are actually preventing some really interesting experiments in making aid work better from taking root and spreading. And you know that's a very powerful finding based on some very thorough research of a, of a flagship project. There's lots of recommendations for aid agencies. I'm not going to go through them. Read them. If you're working for an aid agency or you want to know what aid agencies should be doing better, do read the recommendations. Final post of the week was actually from an FCDO, the new Foreign and Commonwealth and Development Office uh, conversation. Um, it's a guest post from Courtney Cabot-Venton, and it's called What's Stopping Aid? from putting local people and organizations first? Answers from a global conversation. So this is interesting in, you know, when you compare it with the previous post. And here's what Courtney has to say. Sorry, short slip. <clears throat> I've been helping to lead the FCDO's expert advisory team on their global COVID-19 response. Localization has been a prominent and consistent theme. From a very practical perspective, we've had to reckon with a massive increase in social protection funding to 1.8 billion new people to help them cope with the effects of lockdown. The role of local actors, people who are known and trusted by their communities, has been critical to sensitise communities, minimise exclusion, ensure accountability and transparency, and communicate and mitigate risks. We have seen countless examples of local actors leading in the response. Zakat networks, that's the, uh, uh, the, the, the tithing process within Islam. Zakat net, net, networks in occupied Palestinian territories raised and distributed $17 million in May 2020 to support workers and families months before World Bank funding was approved and dispersed. A network of 23,000 informal workers across Thailand not only, improved, not only provided immediate relief, but also facilitated a dialogue between national authorities and street vendors to reopen markets. And Siwa, Self-Employed Women's Association, a network of over 2 million self-employed women in India, played a key role in facilitating government aid, informing members what they're entitled to, how to apply, as well as approaching local government officials on members' behalf. 
So there's some examples, but despite their critical role, the official aid, aid sector has failed at placing these local networks at the forefront. Most international support to local actors currently comes from private philanthropy, which accounts for just 5% of all aid. This means local actors have to spend precious time and energy competing for just a sliver of the pie. One twentieth. If local people and their organisations are going to take a central role, mechanisms to leverage more funding from bilaterals, who account for over 95% of ODA, are key. That is a powerful uh, message that the that localization has been funded by 5% of the overall aid budget, and that is a terrible waste. Our team has been leading a series of convenings. I really hate that word, convenings, but there we go. Let's let it pass. It's like learnings. Anyway, leading a series of convenings with a large group, 100 plus of Global South leaders, private philanthropy and bilateral government donors. Here is a snapshot of perspectives from across this group. From Monica Nyiraguhabwa, founder and executive director of Girl Up Uganda, as a leader of a community-based organization in the Global South, the biggest challenge I face revolves around navigating existing power structures, which are oftentimes subtle and seemingly invisible, but always prove to be extremely disempowering. It can feel as though you are sitting at a table where everyone is discussing you, your challenges and solutions to your challenges, but you're not welcome to contribute to the conversation. The current environment reinforces the antiquated narrative that philanthropy is transactional. The now this is what I expect from you dynamic. If one truly believes in investing in humanity and global equity, then an authentic appreciation and trust in community driven and led solutions must be developed and invested in. Additionally, individuals working in this space have to be comfortable with challenging personal biases and stereotypes and then put in the hard work to unlearn and reimagine what giving up and redistributing power looks like. Because power is at the core and everyone has a crucial role to play in disrupting the cycle. Those two paragraphs should be stuck up on walls in every aid agency as far as I'm concerned and NGO. And now from the the, the donors rather than the recipients from Peter Laugan, president and CEO of the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. No matter where we sit in the funding landscape, we should all continually be asking ourselves whether the right people are at the table. The most effective solutions come from the very people experiencing the issues we seek to solve. Unfortunately, the reality is that they are often excluded from decision making that has a direct impact on them. We must fundamentally shift the narrative from viewing communities as problems, to, as problems to solve to active contributors and experts. This starts with how we lift up the voices and portray the communities we are serving. Philanthropy has a critical role as convener and facilitator. At the Hilton Foundation, there are three paradigm shifts we are looking for. Recognising that lived experience is expertise. Shift resources. Uh, for example, we have committed that 25% of the Foundation's Refugees Strategic initi Initiative will go, go directly to local and refugee-led organisations. Three, build capacity. We are supporting technical assistance for local organisations to serve their communities. We believe this will ultimately build more sustainable solutions and resilient communities. And finally, from USAID, from Arjun Tasker, the portfolio manager for the, for the USAID's new partnerships initiative. USAID has sought to re-envision its role as a genuine partner, and Samantha Power echoed that in a, in a speech this week, the, the USAID boss. 
rather than a distant financier, in supporting countries and communities to sustainably manage their own development since the early 90s. Locally-led development at USAID is about pushing management, measurement and decision-making to be as local as possible. No one across the agency thinks that locally-led development is a bad idea, but a range of institutional, operational and legislative constraints have proven difficult to tackle. For example, the agency is bound by the same rules for procurement as the Department of Defence, and congressional spending earmarks constrain the ability of funding to meet local priorities. Two-year money that has to be spent down within eight months before it is swept, taken back, doesn't provide a lot of scope for the kind of longer-term funding that facilitates effective locally-led development. So the, the post concludes, <clears throat> the evidence indicates that limits on funding to local actors is largely based on a variety of perceived constraints. These constraints are not only context-specific, but also reflect a ubiquitous perception of limitations but without much evidence that they actually exist. That is, limitations of local actors. They're not able to absorb the money. They're not able to do the due diligence. They're not able to do monitoring evaluation. And they're saying that these perceptions are often wrong. They include the perceived inability... Oh, here we are. Sorry, I should have just read it. The perceived inability of local actors to absorb fiduciary, reputational and operational risk, to operate at scale and deliver multidimensional funding and provide multidimensional programming that meets due diligence requirements. Bilateral requirements to fund only through one or two intermediary structures eliminates the possibility of funding multiple smaller local actors. So you've got to go big and that means you can't experiment and have lots of different players and see which ones do well. A kind of you know, Darwinian sort of natural selection, let a thousand flowers bloom kind of approach. We need to reconceptualize intermediary roles and structures. Private philanthropy also needs to bring its leveraging power to the table, using its flexibility to invest in new ways of working and building proof points to shift donor processes. I've always thought that about, about private philanthropy, that they could just be the think tank, the experimenters, but they're often actually behaving like mini world banks and just doing safe stuff. And that's a waste of their time. If they're only 5% of the funding universe, how can they influence the rest of the 95% by coming up with better ways to do things? One of our biggest takeaways has been that we simply are not working together to collaboratively develop practical solutions that can move us beyond rhetoric. Our hope is that by having open and honest conversations about our realities and how we can start to bridge this gap, we will start to see meaningful change. I suppose, yeah, and so the theme of this week's blogs has been one about local power, local localization, you know, having aid led by local actors. And I must admit, I find it pretty frustrating that these conversations have been going round and round and round for years. And I tend to think the reason they fail is because in a fight between good intentions and power, power wins and power inevitably follows money. You can suspend the rules of political economy gravity for a bit and do things that are not where, where the, the donors you know, give up power for a bit, but then as soon as there's a crisis or a change of leadership or something goes wrong, power reverts. So until you can find different ways to raise and give money, I think these conversations will just keep going around in circles. I try and leave um, uh, the post on an upbeat note. So I guess the fact that there are so many conversations and so many interesting experiments means that something could be shifting. But I think they, they've got to get deeper into the, into the money part before it's really going to get to scale. Okay, have a great week. I'll be back in a couple of weeks and I'm off on holiday. So bye. <laughs>